and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, Episode 50, French Africa. This week, we turn to the largest and most diverse part of France's world empire. The African possessions were difficult ones for France, usually because the geography was daunting and the local populations even more so. Despite the challenges, not the least among them, France's relative lack of resources compared to, say, the UK, they pressed ahead and, over the course of several decades, starting in the late 1800s, began picking off pieces of Africa, and on paper, created a gargantuan network of colonies. The main part of their holdings on the continent could be divided into northern, western, and equatorial Africa. Far and away, the closest and most integrated section would be French North Africa, which comprised modern-day Tunisia, Algeria, and most of Morocco, nations that as a group are often referred to as the Maghreb. Algeria had the dubious distinction of having been conquered way back in 1830 when the French king at the time felt he needed a conquest to boost his domestic popularity. Typically, PR wars backfired terribly, but this was an odd case in modern history where it didn't. The invasion of the northern part of the country was concluded in reasonably short order, and France would settle in for the next 130 years. The invasion was followed by generations of settlers crossing the Mediterranean to settle in the new conquest, mostly as farmers who gathered up huge holdings at the expense of native Algerians. Whereas in most colonial areas, the actual number of European settlers was low compared to the native population, in Algeria, by 1900, there were 600,000 Europeans living there, compared to 4 million Algerians. And while the Algerian population would take off over the decades and widen that ratio, Europeans became a significant part of the population, and the colony would be incorporated as a part of metropolitan France. That incorporation meant that the colony was divided into administrative departments, and the French citizens residing there would operate local self-government the same as in France proper and send representatives to the French parliament, which, due to the size of the European population, meant that Algeria was an active component in French political life. It wasn't just a normal foreign possession. The key detail, though, was that this applied only to the French settlers, not the Algerians themselves. French law would apply to the French communities, but the discriminatory colonial law would continue to apply to everyone else. Nor would the non-citizens be able to participate in French political life. There were attempts several times over the decades to expand political rights to the Algerians in order to draw them closer to France, but those efforts were resisted by both the French settlers and the Algerians themselves. The settlers wanted to maintain their privileged status in the colony, while the Algerians were uninterested in becoming French. They just wanted the interlopers to leave. The grievances the Algerians had with the French were numerous. They contributed almost half the colony's taxes despite having only a third of the wealth, and had to watch that money be devoted to French interests, not theirs. The settlers held two-fifths of all arable land, depriving the much larger Algerian population access to both farmland and grazeland for their animal herds. Because of the scarcity of arable land available, Algerians would try to farm more marginal ground, which rapidly depleted and made the land unsuitable even for grazing. Meanwhile, the settlers established grand estates on their lands, which in turn attracted local workers to actually tend it. But this was wage work, based on need and how bountiful the season was, which meant it was also a terribly unstable form of employment that also paid terribly. But hey, the exports were valuable to the French economy, so 
gross injustices could be overlooked. The balance of power began to shift ever so slightly, though, during and after World War I in Algeria. Almost a quarter million troops from there served in the French army, and it was understood that they would be getting more of a voice in their own self-government. This was reflected after the war by expanding voting rights for local governments to hundreds of thousands more Algerians. The prospect of locals gaining more of a voice perturbed the settler community in the agricultural sector, and enthusiasm for expanding operations there tapered off. Many began selling their farms off, not seeing much of a future in an Algeria where they had to share rights with the actual Algerians. Some land was transferred to Muslim buyers, but much of the land started being consolidated by businesses back in France. This wouldn't reverse the size of the European population, rather it became more concentrated in the cities and in non-farming ventures. The shift didn't mean that life got terribly better in the 20s, though, and the lack of prospects for many returning Algerian veterans convinced many to have a go at going back to France on a more permanent basis starting a long-term trend that would have implications that go well beyond this podcast. By the 30s, Algeria would still be playing host to a large European population and provided an appreciable boost to French agricultural output. But life there had shifted at least somewhat. Algerians had served in the war and would be willing to serve again if need be, but their price had been increased political rights followed by more local interest in the economy. If called upon again, a similar transaction could be expected. The people there were no closer to actually identifying with France. Algeria was a rich prize, but the potential for it to drift away would start to enter the calculations of the French leadership in the years to follow. The next French conquest in North Africa was Tunisia in 1881. I won't belabor the overview on this particular area as it was smaller and less consequential to France, but there are some details to cover. The administration of Tunisia was envisioned as more modern and enlightened compared to the divisive one in Algeria. But the French maintained only an illusion of local rule, while in practice pushing a similar blueprint as in Algeria. Settlers were encouraged to move in, although it never hit the levels that it did in Algeria, probably because the prospective pool of immigrants had already tried their hand at that colony. Interestingly, many of the eventual settlers were actually Italians, and just before World War I, there were 90,000 of them compared to just 45,000 French. The presence of that many Italians would eventually attract the eye of the fascist government in Rome, and Tunisia would eventually become one of Italy's many Mediterranean ambitions. The European presence, though, didn't quite disrupt Tunisian society the way it had in Algeria, though, mainly because it came 50 years later and the Tunisian elites had already partially modernized the north of the country. The incoming Europeans did also snap up choice agricultural land at the expense of Tunisians, but many of the former landholders there managed to survive and even prosper under the new administration. And the number of French landholders would also see a decline after World War I, similar to Algeria, but with much of the slack being taken up by still more Italian entrepreneurs. The land was also rich in iron ore and phosphates, the latter of which would grow into a gargantuan industry that by the 30s was producing a quarter of the world's supply. The main problem for the colony, beyond being, you know, a colony, was that the population was advancing beyond the local economy's capacity to provide for. By the end of the 20s, Tunisia was a profitable colony, but a restive one that was subject to labor strikes and a growing political movement calling for independence. The last component of French North Africa, Morocco, 
had been a sovereign kingdom for centuries, but by 1900 was falling apart. The French were enroaching on the eastern borders from Algeria, and the ruling sultan had lost his grip on the local elites. French business interests had steadily established themselves in the country, and in 1905 the sultan finally tried to resist the French after getting promises of support from Germany. The French used this as a pretext to hold a European conference on Morocco's fate, and it was decided in their favor. France would get to supervise the Moroccan state and assume control over the administration of eight of the nation's largest ports. The arrangement further eroded the sultan's support, and he soon faced rebellions all over the country, which weakened his position to the point where he just accepted outright French control in 1912. The sultan was rewarded by being removed five months later. Fun side note, the northern coastline of Morocco was given over to the Spanish to secure their support, which would have to be occupied by its conservative army to put down local resistance, which would also be the colonial battles where one Francisco Franco would gain his fame. The strip of land also wasn't quite as much as the Spanish had hoped for, and when France would later be at Hitler's mercies, Moroccan territory would be one reward that Franco presented to him as a condition of Spain's hypothetical support for the Axis. All right, back on topic. The occupation couldn't have come at a worse time. Morocco was in absolutely terrible shape, with those local interests that had been rebelling against the Sultan now agitating against the French. And just a little over two years after moving in, World War I kicked off and interrupted attempts to pacify the country. At the time, the main thing going for France was the fact that the country was just as divided against itself as it was against foreign rule. The French held the coasts and the strategic cities of the northern interior, but it would only be by the mid-1920s that its rule was established across the western Atlas Mountains and into the oasis cities further south. That being said, once exploitation actually got going, it got going hard, and by 1930, Morocco's agricultural sector rivaled Algeria. In mining, too, it joined its North African counterparts in becoming a player, and by 1931, there were 170,000 French living in the country, the brevity of their rule up to that point doing little to slow down their expanding operations. By the end of the 1920s, all three countries would be much more plugged in France's economy than the majority of the empire, mostly due to their proximity to the homeland in a climate suitable enough that large-scale migration from France and Europe actually was attractive. The impact these Maghreb countries had on France's fortunes was not inconsiderable. They churned out food and minerals, which were enriching economically, and they provided a large pool of potential soldiers in the event of war. Where many colonies, for many of the great powers, failed to return any benefit on their investment, and I'm looking hard over at Italy's empire and some of the more desolate British ones, these areas were profitable targets of French investment, which was one of the many reasons the populations living there disliked French rule, as public expenditures were directed at increasing resource exports back to France, not to them. But it was a great deal for the French, and they helped shore up their position in the world to a higher degree than the average set of colonies could be expected to. During the war, these territories would be considered as a refuge in case of disaster in metropolitan France, later on as a potential bargaining chip between nations in Axis Europe, and finally served as the site where the United States made landfall in the European theater of the war. Alongside Indochina, French North Africa is going to come up quite a bit down the road. Down south across the Sahara, the Empire game was going to be far harder on the French. The first issue was that the area was just huge, extending from the westernmost coasts on the Atlantic to the borders of Sudan, and extending southwards to the Belgian Congo. 
along the Atlantic coasts, it was broken by a handful of British colonies and a single Portuguese one. The geography, too, was uninviting. The Sahara to the north gave way to a semi-arid, steppe-like transition zone called the Sahel, before giving way to more hospitable climes towards the south. Still, great heat, disease, and the jungles that predominated the southwest corner of this empire were obstacles that were only haphazardly dealt with, never fully overcome. Another obstacle, also never fully tackled by the Europeans, was the diversity of cultures and languages of the native peoples, and par for the course as empires went, the French didn't often consider local details when governing. To oversee the region, the French set up two administrative units. The first, French West Africa, consisted of all French territory up to the borders of Nigeria and Chad, and was governed from the port of Dakar on the far western shores in modern Senegal. The other was French Equatorial Africa, which ran from Chad down to the modern Republic of Congo, aka the smaller of the two Congos, being bounded by Sudan, Nigeria, and the Belgian Congo. Its HQ was at Brazzaville, along the Congo River, and would become notable as the first French administrative unit to recognize Charles de Gaulle's free French government. For both units, the business of actually raising the flag and conquering was largely completed by World War I. The business of actually getting anything out of these places, well, that was just starting. As new conquests, French sub-Saharan Africa was on average only lightly governed by 1914. The coasts saw the most effective European presence, while the interior was held by only scattered outposts, and many of those were evacuated during the war years on account of a lack of soldiers, which allowed the nomadic tribes of the northern Niger River to revolt and started a war that would run to the beginning of the 1930s. But, by and large, in the interior, French control was initially maintained by forming alliances with local elites, in much the same way the British got their African empire going. More so than the British, though, the French backed up their rule with ever-present military force. Not that the British ever hesitated in that department, mind you, but the French placed several regions under direct military governance until the 1920s, so the visibility of military power was greater. The skepticism towards the colonial empire within French popular opinion also meant that the colonies would have to pay for their own upkeep, something that would be very tricky given the colonial governments were starting from scratch. West Africa would see a relative boom in exports before and during World War I, much like elsewhere in Africa, producing rubber and cash crops. Some inroads were made there, uh, railroads and plantations were developed, uh, normal imperialism stuff. Equatorial Africa, though, regressed and saw shrinking business activity and reduced investment in infrastructure by the 1920s, which was great for the natives, as the French footprint was actually reduced for a time. Both colonial units succeeded in keeping control of huge areas on the cheap, but neither were a big factor in the French economy, accounting for less than a 1.5% of the nation's trade. One thing the colonies were able to provide from an early stage, though, was manpower. Like the Maghreb countries to the north, Sub-Saharan Africa sent many of its sons to fight and die on behalf of their colonial masters, some 167,000 in all. For many, the call was not answered voluntarily, and the French induced local authorities to basically press-gang as many recruits they could get their hands on. This in turn caused tens of thousands to flee their homes and find refuge in foreign colonies. And the French had to turn to manhunts in order to find deserters or those who had failed to report for duty. This dislocation, coupled with the sudden drop in available workers in some places, caused no small amount of misery as villages emptied out. France also demanded communities expand their agricultural operations and increase requisitions from them. 
meaning that natives were working more and receiving less than ever before. The sad situation was compounded by the fact that the French really didn't benefit a whole lot from what was requisitioned, as it was in too small quantities to make any difference, which just made the misery all the more pointless. By the time the war ended and we entered the 1920s, French sub-Saharan Africa found itself in terrible shape. Just before the war, there had been major droughts all across the region, which meant that the requisitions of the war years made food scarcity all the worse and caused a notable decline in public nutrition, which in turn meant that the population became less productive, which in turn increased French pressure on them. These droughts wouldn't go away either until the early 1920s. All the movement of people, whether as workers and soldiers or as refugees, caused outbreaks of disease, which was topped off in 1918 by the influenza pandemic. But there was a new group of Africans that brought with them fresh ideas for the future, and that was the war veterans. Most of them had seen action in Europe, and had seen that their overlords might not be as invincible as they were made out to be. Nothing like trench warfare to make you start questioning the competency of your leaders. They also noticed that the majority of whites had miserable lives as well, bound in service to indifferent bosses, and that they weren't too happy about their lot either. Upon returning to Africa, these vets were given increased freedoms at home in addition to a pension, and their service also heightened their prestige in their homeland. These were guys who had probably left under some duress, as I wasn't joking around about those press gangs, but were now proven fighters and not about to just go back and allow themselves to be pushed around. They would form soldiers' associations to advocate for more rights and be at the vanguard of strikes and worker demands for higher wages across French Africa. From these experiences began an African-centered approach to public life. And it wasn't only the returning veterans getting in on resisting the French either. As foreign rule became more firmly established, a new generation started coming of age that had only known European domination, but had not experienced the demoralizing wars of conquest that had preceded their rule. Unlike the previous generation that had resigned itself to colonization through bitter defeat, the upcoming one would work within the new system they were born into to advance their interests. Foremost among them were school-educated Africans who, while a tiny minority, were critical in formulating how Africans would approach their participation in colonial life. For the first couple of decades, the French had held out hope of assimilation. The idea that development and education would attract Africans to the French culture and, over time, make them Frenchmen. How the problem of chronic racism among the French themselves would be overcome, I have no idea. But it doesn't matter because the policy never really went anywhere in practice. In both West and Equatorial Africa, development was haphazard and constantly stunted by a lack of resources. Neither the government nor the country's businesses wanted to invest in Africa, so the vast dominions remained apart from the metropole and its culture. By the end of World War I, the French had recognized the impractical nature of such a policy and instead had turned to a new policy of associationism. This was a more pragmatic approach towards colonialism, recognizing that neither the colonizer nor the colonized had much interest in joining closely with each other, while still affirming that the status quo wasn't going away. The French would offer opportunities for local rights and some self-governance in exchange for cooperation in extracting resources and providing labor. The French would also make increased attempts at improving public health, although these efforts stemmed mostly from the pandemic disasters of the decade preceding the 20s, which had so badly cut into the workforce that France depended on to keep their colonies running. The policy of associationism also brings it back up the topic of education. Now, 
There weren't many schools, and the ones that existed weren't given a whole lot of resources to work with, and the teaching staffs were typically subpar, but they were there. And while their pupils were only a depressingly small fragment of the population, and their academic performance was about commensurate with the resources spent on them, they did produce tens of thousands of Africans with an education every year. Now, their first inclination was to secure employment in the colonial administration itself, which might not sound so great at first, but actually went against French wishes. The French wanted educated Africans to go into the public sector and serve French companies and employers as more technically capable workers. Instead, they created public servants scrambling for clerical and administrative postings. And remember the example of India, where the independence movement was preceded by native Indians getting an education, or even just a partial education, then going towards administrative jobs, and once within the system, began pushing native interests. This was exactly what the French didn't want, and despite them thinking they knew how to manage their subjects, they didn't, and it blew up in their faces. Tensions bubbled up in the 20s, with a notable example occurring in the coastal city of Porto Novo, in modern-day Benin. A former teacher-turned-journalist, Louis Hunkaren, used his underground newspaper to protest the latest round of tax increases, which the government had imposed to make up for revenues lost due to the economy falling apart amidst the disturbances of the past decade. In February 1923, local notables, including members of the League for the Rights of Man, an African veterans group that advocated for social change, all started supporting a campaign of non-compliance towards the taxes. It worked, and defying the will of their chieftain leaders, people of the city went on strike. This in turn caused the government to send in troops and lay siege to the city in order to break up the strike. This violence did not go over well, and more Africans started joining organizations to advocate for increased freedoms and participation in public life. This was also a time where some Africans had gotten to spend some time in France itself in the civilian capacity, and contact had been made with the French Communist Party, and that group became active in communicating and coordinating with activists all over the colonies. The government was aware and alarmed at the increased activity, but there was only so much they could do about it. In 1925, African troops were sent in to break up a railroad strike, but this backfired terribly when the troops refused to fire on their own people, and the conditions of the strike had to be met. The limits of French rule were amply demonstrated in equatorial Africa when a large-scale revolt broke out in 1924. It was led by a mystic named Carnau, and initially was a peaceful campaign of non-compliance in French Cameroon and Congo, areas distant enough from the scarce handful of administration hubs that the French authorities didn't even notice it at first. That changed in 1927 when the movement grew to over 400,000 people, with 60,000 of them arming themselves to resist the French. And just as a fun note, this was not a region known for unified political movements or large bodies of soldiers. So this was a very big red light to the French that their presence wasn't nearly as welcome as they thought it was. The authorities moved in and killed Carnau in December 1928, but his followers went into a full-scale rebellion that lasted to 1931. In short, by the end of the 20s, French rule in sub-Saharan Africa was on uncertain footing with unhappy and impoverished subjects, stunted development, and the fact that the colonies just weren't bringing in the imagined economic benefits. It would ironically be the Great Depression that gave the French administration a second wind, as when the global markets fell into disarray, France turned to its colonies for an economic crutch. And all of a sudden, those marginal colonies became a big source of investment. I'll cover all that, though, when I drop back in for Season 2, as that's when the region will become much more important to the metropole 
as part of France's response to the Great Depression. For the extent of this first period we're covering, Sub-Saharan Africa was a marginal possession, despite its size and potential wealth. I would usually talk about how it was a drain on resources, too, but to be frank, the French government didn't really see fit to expend too much on maintaining the colonies, as problems elsewhere had their attentions stretched thin already. You may recall from the French series that those issues back home didn't get papered over until later in the decade. And with the major direct colonies covered, I'll be moving on to the last leg of the World Empire Tour and cover the Middle East. If those two words inspire dread, next week's episode won't disappoint. It's one bungled occupation after another, which should be a shred of consolation for American listeners, as our own failed outings can be seen as simply the most recent in a long lineage of imperial disaster. Join me then, and as always, thank you very much for listening.